Hi, it's Zoe, and I work with CEOs and leaders to do the people stuff better. One of the things you can do to get started right away is to download the People Stuff Toolkit right on my homepage at zoerouth.com. It includes a e-copy of my book, Loyalty, How to Stop Unwanted Staff Turnover, Boost Engagement, and Create Lifelong Advocates, as well as the checklists and templates to get going. So for today, I'm wondering if you're struggling with these kind of issues. Did you know that only 20% of teams are operating at their full potential? And are you one of them? Do you have narcissists that you are contending with in your organization, either a peer, a boss, or someone that you manage? Narcissists are the self-obsessed people who have a lot of difficulty understanding what other people are coming from, and they are obsessed about their own self-interest. And do you wonder how you can teach others self-awareness? Well, my guest today is a specialist in the people stuff, and she reveals a lot of really fabulous, practical, useful insights around some of these topics. Her name is Carrie Goyette. She is the founder and president of Aperio Consulting Group, and she uses workplace analytics and research-based strategies to build high-performance teams. She's done a lot of research on neuroscience and psychology. Her work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Forbes, and she has a new book out called The Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence, which was selected as one of the best business books for summer 2019 by Forbes. She's amazing. I had a wonderful conversation with her, and I learned heaps about some of the juicier, grittier people stuff. So let's get into it. It is so wonderful to have you on the podcast all the way from Columbia, Missouri. Welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on your show. I'm excited to talk to you about emotional intelligence and your latest book and all things people stuff, because I think we are a little bit like-minded in the importance of understanding people and learning how to get along better. Uh, Am I right around that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've enjoyed listening to your podcasts, and I think we, yeah, we have several similarities there. Uh, thank you. Oh, I appreciate the listenership. So my first question is around leadership, and I love asking people this question because everyone has a little different spin on it. So in your mind, in your definition, how do you define leadership, and when did you discover you were capable of doing it? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it certainly has been a journey for sure. So, you know, I always think of leadership as our ability to add significance to other people. And so whether that's leading ourselves or leading a team of people or leading a project, I just think we have a lot of opportunities to lead. My dad was a leader growing up, and so he managed um, a large team. And so it was really interesting just to hear his trials and tribulations and what seemed to work and what didn't. And anyway, so I felt like I learned a lot from him. And then you know, building up my private practice. I was on the clinical side initially in my career. So my postgraduate research was in neuroscience and psychometrics, and I did a lot of psychotherapy. I was also a certified forensic interviewer. So I, wait, I wait, had wait. my own stop for Stop for a second. <laughs> Those are a lot of big words in there. Neuroscience and psychometrics. Yeah. And so could you explain what the intersection of that? That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. So I became interested when I went to college. My mother struggled with depression and anxiety. She kind of all of a sudden it it hit. And there were a couple other things that happened with other people. And I became very fascinated about the human brain. And I was kind of curious about why do some people hit trials and tribulations and 
they kind of can fold or or succumb to different issues and and how come other people write these amazing books that they've survived the holocaust and now they're the ceo of a company and and they're a motivational speaker and so i became very interested in how trials and tribulations and fear um, impacted the brain. And so I started out accounting and statistics major and ended up switching um, and just became fascinated with the brain and learning more about, you know, our personality motivation. I've done a lot of research and motivation. And so it actually took me on the clinical route, which I'm glad that it did. Um, I did psychotherapy. I did a lot of forensic interviewing. So I studied body language and, and understanding um, how to interview somebody in an unbiased way, whether they were victims or perpetrators. Uh, and it really taught me a lot about the human condition. And so then I transitioned to kind of an interesting pivot, but I transitioned into helping a startup. They were a pharmaceutical startup and I helped them for three years and helped um, lead a team and, and get that going. And I just became hooked. And so I decided to get into consulting organizations and kind of using my knowledge of studying emotional intelligence for over two decades and, and what has come out about um, the human brain and how we can understand how human behavior, you know, what drives human behavior in the workplace. And so it's just become a passion of mine. My whole mission and everything that I feel like I'm I'm driven to do is really about how can we reveal the potential in both us as individuals and teams or our family units? Which is a wonderful question. And the question that you started off though, with based on your mother's ex observation of your mother's experience, which is why is it that some people can go through the Holocaust and come out and triumph and others don't? What did you discover was the answer to that question? Yeah, I think it's some of it is it can be genetic, some of it, you know, there can be underlying you know, physiological or biological conditions. But, but when we look at, you know, what we have control over and how we can manage our own fears and, and anxieties, there's actually a lot that we can do. I mean, our brain is very malleable. And so, and, and what I find that's very interesting, like when we, we do a lot of research studies and when we look at leaders or we look at salespeople or we look at, you know, different roles and we study top performers compared to their low performing counterparts, what I find that's interesting that always comes out is that they can kind of track pretty closely together, but where they start to diverge is when problems and challenges hit. So when vendors don't follow through or we, you know, the, the raw materials didn't come in or, you know, a team member failed or missed a deadline. Um, that's what separates top performers from lower performing counterparts. And I realized, you know, when we have to deal with problems and challenges, that's when <laughs> either the best version of ourselves or sometimes the worst version of ourselves comes out. And that's where fear and insecurities are most likely to surface. And so in my chapter of the book, when I talk about derailers, derailers really um, often surface in times of stress, in times of uncertainty, in times of, you know, when we're feeling insecure, things that, that tap at our vulnerabilities. And so what I found in working with leaders is that we really need to be acutely aware of where those vulnerabilities are, where we're likely to derail. And then we have the freedom to choose a different strategy. And we can put things in place, structure in place to help mitigate our chance of derailing or succumbing to fear. Can you give some examples of what, what are derailers? Yeah, the six most common derailers that I see in organizations are conflict avoidance. So that's our leader that will um, avoid conflict at all costs. Um, they tend to want to be a people pleaser. So that people pleasing 
uh, motivation is behind it. Impulsiveness. So I see that um, with some of my CEOs and some of my executive leaders. Um, they will often be impulsive. They want it right now. They're not really thinking about the long-term implications. They're really just thinking about short-term payoffs. So kind of like a drug addict, you know, we take a short-term hit, but at the expense of a, a long-term payoff. Blame shifting, again, very common in organizations. This is where I see this especially across different departments. It wasn't our fault. It was that department's fault. They made an error. They missed a deadline or they didn't give us all the information. So a lot of blame shifting can derail us and actually keeps us from solving the problem. Control, uh, we see this often uh, with leaders that they have such a a knack for wanting to, to control the outcome that they start controlling people and exactly how they do their work. And that is the fastest way to demotivate um, and to cause employees to be disengaged. Perfectionism, I see this especially in people that are very bright, very technical. So like engineers, people in the arts, you know, graphics designers, um, they want things perfect. And so sometimes it can, you know, that can be a strength, but it can also be a weakness if taken too far. They will miss deadlines, miss goals and objectives due to their perfectionism. And then the last one is power hunger. We see this in some leaders that it's all about them. It's about their ego. It's about them getting to that next level. And again, they'll step over people, step around them, use people, manipulate situations in order to get to that next level. So this is a really rich topic, and I have two questions around these derailers. So in your research and experience, is it fear that underpins these derailers? Or you mentioned some things are genetic and some things are brain-driven or fear-driven. So is it fear that underpins these derailers, or is it something else? Well, usually it's coming out of the emotional centers of our brain. And so it can be fear, it can be anxiety, it can be an insecurity it can just be narcissism, <laughs> you know, in the case of power hunger, sometimes it can be a case of, you know, I'm so much more important than anybody else. But it's usually, I will say, if you really dig under, even underneath some of the ego-driven power hungry, there's usually um, an insecurity that's embedded in that. So yes, usually some sort of fear or negative self-talk. Um, it's embedded usually in early childhood. Now, all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we probably can see some of those that have come out um, in different parts of our life. And so, you know, again, I think we're all subject to a lot of them, if not all of them. But the question is, you know, how often do we let it surface and what do we do to manage those? And so in times of stress, when things go wrong, that's when we need to be acutely aware of what are our coping strategies and what is the strategy that we want to leverage when we're in different situations. So understanding our triggers and then how to mitigate the risk of derailing during that. Because when we get into a situation where we're thrown off or something doesn't go right, that's usually where we switch to the emotional centers of our brain. Our IQ drops about 75%. So we go down to roughly about an eight-year-old and we start making decisions very emotionally driven. And if it's out of fear, then we can often just, we're missing, we're, we're missing some of the, some of the data that we need to take in. We're missing some of the objectivity because it becomes about self-preservation. I think that's really important to know, particularly as we're recording this, we are in the middle of the coronavirus. I've said it so many times, I can't say it anymore. No. Oh my God, the, you know, the pandemic thing. We're in the middle yes. of that. You're in lockdown, I'm in lockdown. Um, and there is so much of this going on. So, so much of this fear-based uncertainty triggers. And I was, I was curious about your perspective on this. You know, this is globally some of the conditions that's going to put all of us into this unhelpful eight-year-old 
uh, stressed, emotional driven brain. What do you see happening in leaders around the globe with this? Yeah, and you're you're yeah, you're exactly right. It is somewhat bringing out the worst in some of us. And and you know, again, when we look at the research and and we we understand that top performers, you know, really diverge from their low performing counterparts during challenges, during problems. Oh my gosh, if there was ever a challenge or a problem, that was it. And so I would say in this crisis, there's also a lot of opportunity to really kind of think about ourselves as leaders and what do we want to be known for? How do we want to navigate our team during this? When we look at other crises, like um, in the United States, the 2008 recession, what, what did a lot of leaders do? They went inward. They stopped communicating. They were less transparent. And again, it's self-preservation. I get it. Like leaders are struggling right now. We don't know if we're having to lay off you know, half of our workforce. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know how long this is going to last. This is uncertain times. But again, I would say this is the time that leaders need to remember that they are leading teams and that you have to be more transparent. You have to communicate even more. You have to navigate and lead them through this and how well you're able to navigate that at the end of the day, I think will be pivotal. I think we, we will certainly see a real strong sense of leaders that rise to the top because they embraced it and said, this is my reality. I can't control it, but I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to do whatever I can do to lead my team and navigate these, these uncertain waters. And then I think you will see those leaders that go inward. They lack communication, lack transparency. And I think you'll see teams that will really struggle during this time and may, you know, even fall apart. And, you know, again, once this virus um, is gone, that, you know, it may impact them. Um, it may have a very long-term impact. Oh, yeah, no doubt the world is shifting on its axis and it'll be a new territory for everyone in every context. And that may include how leaders show up and how teams function. I want to ask you about the weird people stuff or the extreme people stuff. Uh, You mentioned also that some of the derailers can be driven by narcissism. I've read a little bit about psychopaths and CEO-ship and this power hungry (laughs) and this power hunger. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about what you know, uh, the correlation between high-level leadership, narcissism, psychopaths, and and some other unusual people stuff? Or maybe it's not that unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I always tell people, you know, I could write a book that's better than a soap opera with some of the the issues with leaders that I've had to deal with. You know, there's a lot of shenanigans at the top. Um, I've had I've had leaders threatening each other in in parking lots. I've had all kinds of like crazy. Yeah, just you would not expect it. So, you know, I think sometimes we tend to idolize leaders like they have it all together, but there are very few leaders that I've met that have it all together. Um, No, I think one thing they do have in common is they are all very smart. I mean, they didn't get to the top without having some smarts, but do they have some issues? And I think that's one of the reasons I love working with leaders is, you know, being a leader is hard. And when you talk about, you know, things that can bring out the worst in you, it is hard to lead teams. Um, It's easy to judge when you're an individual contributor and there's certainly, you know, there isn't the perfect leader out there, but it's very easy to judge. And then the first time somebody becomes a supervisor or manager for the first time, I always love their thoughts because they're like, wow, this is much harder than I thought. And oh my gosh. And so I'm like, yeah, it is. And it, it pulls at every single insecurity that you have um, at some point. And so, but yeah, you, we, I have seen extreme behavior 
you do see some really inappropriate behavior by leaders. Um, you can see very narcissistic behavior. Like I said, the one, <laughs> the one instance of the two leaders fighting, there was one that, yeah, I was pretty convinced he was narcissistic and was really upset that he didn't get the CFO job and was kind of going after the other person that did get it. Um, so you do, you see all kinds of issues, but every leader has their story. I worked with several that have, you know, been severely abused growing up and um, you can understand why sometimes their leadership isn't the best. They have this old kind of mental framing that they've had a hard time letting go. And so, you know, again, I, I will just say every leader has their story and they're human just like anybody else. And some of them are, you know, some of them are incredibly toxic. I'm not going to lie, but, but there are also a lot of good leaders out there, maybe not perfect, but people that really do want to make a difference and want to make an impact and want to try to be the best version of a leader they can be. And those are usually the best the best leaders, when they come to the table with a bit of humility and also just being that learner, I want to learn, I want to develop because less than 10% of people have natural ability to lead. So it's really something you have to develop. It takes trial and error. It takes a little bit of experience and some failure along the way. And that's why I always recommend that if you can let somebody fail first before you promote them into a leadership position, because you want to see what kind of character they have. Do they hide it and conceal it? Do they confront it and learn from it? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Let them fail and see how they how they do they sink or swim? Do they flounder? Do they pull other people under with them? Exactly. And you want to know that going into it because they will replicate some of that same behavior. Yeah. And I know that listeners are going to ask this one. So if you've got the parking lot situation where you've got your narcissistic leader who's pulling down and physically attacking or verbally attacking, was it verbal or physical or both? verbal, but bordering on physical. Okay. So you've got threatening narcissistic behavior. So narcissistic behavior is when you're self-obsessed. Is that a correct definition of narcissism correct. or is there a more accurate mm -hmm. one? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, um, yeah, they can't think outside of themselves. Um, very self-absorbed. Okay. So they don't have it. They lack that sense of other component, lack of empathy. Lack of empathy and sense of other. So if you have to work alongside one of those people, how do you handle them? Yeah, it's, it's tough, but what can you do to kind of mitigate that impact on yourself? Um, number one, just understand that they have a perspective. They probably have issues that they've dealt with. Like I said, um, when I dig into the past of a lot of, you know, some of these um, difficult or challenging leaders, um, they have a really rough past. I had one leader that you know, was basically homeless in New York City and, you know, grew up on it, you know, so he was like, he didn't trust anybody and didn't rely on anybody. And so not that that's condoning their behavior, but just understand that they were a little kid at once, they had hurts. And so the reason you do that again, is not to condone their behavior, but to see that it's human and it's not personal against you. Um, that's just how they behave. That's how they're self-protecting. And then for you, it's a good opportunity to look at number one, is this job important enough um, to, to stay in this situation? And if it is, if there are reasons to stay in it, then I think you just need to somewhat socially distance yourself and then, but create really good, deep relationships of others around you. And that's where, you know, when you have a leader or a CEO, the team, the quality of the team will always dictate whether that team succeed rather than just the leader. The leader is absolutely important to it and um, can create, 
you know, dysfunction or can also create a healthy environment. But the more that the team can start to become healthy and um, it can start mitigating some of the impact that the leader has. So I would say, you know, developing relationships with coworkers that you can trust. And that helps you emotionally regulate as well because you can kind of bounce ideas off of each other, failures, frustrations that you're currently having. We can more easily emotionally regulate and it doesn't take any conscious effort or any energy from the brain when we do it with others, as long as it's done in a healthy way. So again, it's just about evaluating what your options are. Is this job worth staying in based on the leader? And if it is, then looking at ways that you can create boundaries and protect yourself so that it's not having a negative impact. It amazes me that narcissists, because they are so toxic, can rise to power. So how, how do you explain mm-hmm. that? Well, because I think a lot of times what people see in power, it's, it doesn't look as narcissistic when you're an individual contributor. It looks like somebody that's, wow, they're really good at what they do. And if they're smart, you know, they're often rewarded for assertiveness behavior, for solving a problem, being a wicked problem solver. But the problem is that's going to hurt them in leadership. And other people are not often, they don't often see it or they see what they want to see. And so when they, when they put them into a supervisory position um, where they're leading other people, they may not recognize the negative impact a leader is having because they're still caught up and they were a really good individual contributor. They're smart or Um, You know, some of the worst leaders I've worked with have had degrees from Ivy League schools and they're almost savant-like. And so it's hard for like a CEO to say, let's let that leader go because, wow, I mean, they, it's hard because some of what they do is very good or they wouldn't be in that position. They're technically smart. They know how to analyze data. They know how to, you know, solve really tough, complex problems. But the question is, what kind of impact are they having on the organization? And when I get a CEO um, or somebody high up that can see that a leader is being toxic, and if they, it's a tough decision when they also bring good things to the organization, but when they do finally terminate or let that individual go, often that's when they see the impact of what their negative leadership was having on the group. And that's when they're like, oh, I should have done that. I should have done that a year ago. And so they, they overvalue their technical expertise rather than valuing, are you collaborative? Can you cooperate with the team? Can you align with other parts of the organization? And that, that's just hard. It's harder to evaluate. And I think it's often undervalued. The, the collaboration and cooperation piece is undervalued, you mean? Yeah, often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, we could just say, oh, but they, they do a really good job of solving this problem or they're really good in their, their technical expertise. And that's, that's often how I see organizations rationalize it. And I get it. I mean, it's hard to find, you know, somebody that has it all. But I will say, if you have a leader that's toxic, they are doing more damage than you even realize. And so that's where we like to go in and do climate scans and look at what is really going on within the organization. And we do it by leader, by work group. And so we can actually see those leaders that are flourishing and their teams are really flourishing. Because when you bring out the best in your team, when you create the kind of environment where your team can thrive, it actually brings up the IQ of the whole group. And so that's where if you have a team that is really collaborating well and communicating well and working well together as a team, they will outperform any team with smarter IQ and more experience. And I think that's what people just don't get. We see people as individuals and we see people that are smart and that's great. We want to keep them, but we don't look at the whole and say, but how do they work well as a team? So that's a lot of the work that I do. I do a lot of team-based work because less than 20% of teams are operating at their full potential. Oh my goodness. That's terrible. (laughs) Less than 20%. 
Yeah. But on the flip side that there's a lot of opportunity for improvement. And if that's, you know, and again, that's where I will say there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity out there to get your teams working better and get them more efficient. And especially in times like this, when we're in a crisis and times are hard, um, this is by all times, like we've got to have everybody working on all full cylinders and at our best, at our absolute best, even amidst the, this, um, this crisis. Where would you start? So if, if 20% of less than 20% of teams are operating at full potential, what would you recommend to our listeners? What would they do to start to try and being part of the teams that work well? <laughs> so the ones that are working at, at optimal, where do they start with that? Yeah, well, I would say if you're the leader, number one, you need to inspire hope. There's a lot of research around problem solving. And I think, you know, what what's missing from the conversation and what's, I think, a little bit non-obvious is that you have to have hope to be a really good problem solver. And so when we're going through a challenging time, when it's uncertain, we have to have some hope that we can get through this, some hope that there is a solution out there, some hope that we're going to be on the other side of this at some point. Otherwise, what happens is we tend to just disengage and you will not get the problem solving abilities out there. So whether you're a contributor on the team, whether you're a leader, you need to be inspiring hope with your group. Um, the other thing is, you know, during times of uncertainty, you have to focus and simplify. Again, we're not operating at our full capacity during a crisis. So that's where I always say reduce and chunk, reduce and chunk. We're feeling overwhelmed. We're worried about our loved ones. We're worried about our families. We're worried about our coworkers. We're stuck at home <laughs> trying to work when we have kids running around. It's hard. So Did you say reduce and shock? Did, reduce and shock. Did I hear that correctly? Or is it a different No, word? no, no. Re reduce and chunk. Oh, and chunk into small, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Not shock. <laughs> yeah, chunk into small bite-sized pieces. And that will help when people are feeling overwhelmed, it helps us to move forward. And so the brain, like short-term memory, we can only remember, you know, up to most three things. And so if we can chunk into three, like, listen, right now, our top three priorities for our team are, you know, X, Y, and Z. Great. Let's make it easy. And then eliminate things that are non-essential right now when it's tough. When you're hitting challenges and problems, eliminate the non-essential. It makes you very efficient. You start to see like, if, we, if we're going to get through this, what's most important that we do? And then thirdly, you have to balance underreacting with overreacting. You know, right now, and this is kind of more specific to this environment, but um, you know, you have to balance that underreacting with overreacting. If you underreact, you look like somebody who's a jerk and unempathetic. I had a CEO that was telling me about an employee that was like, this is stupid. I'm, I'm coming to work anyway because they sent everybody home um, to quarantine. And what did he look like to his team? He looked like a big jerk because he was like, this is stupid. I'm going to come. Well, yeah, you're 20 <laughs> and you're probably going to be fine. But what message does that send to your 60 year, five year old coworker? that may not come out of this as easily as you would. And so the CEO had to, it was a good coaching opportunity and had to say, no, no, you're not going to come to work. And this is about, you have to make decisions. This is a time where we have to make decisions. That's not just always personal decisions, but then there's decisions for the greater good. And so that way, you know, it was a really good coaching opportunity for that CEO to have with that younger employee. So, and then if we overreact, of course, then we feed into the drama and the fear and the craziness. And so we're social beings by nature and we will mimic um, those around us. So I think we need to have a healthy respect for this, but also hopeful and saying, hey, we're going to get through this. This won't last forever. Let's navigate this. And we've got to problem solve our way through it. And the only way we can do that is to focus on what we can control and to keep the emotions at, you know, hopefully a neutral level, but at least hopefully not over amplified. 
um, because we don't want to make decisions out of fear, but we want to have a healthy respect and care for and make decisions for the greater good. And that's, you know, that's just a balancing act between underreacting and overreacting. And so in general, I would say, you know, for this time, that's what's important. But I, I would say outside of this, I think this is a perfect example that as individuals, you know, I'm doing a lot on teaching mental agility, that the environment is shifting fast, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, you know, markets that are going crazy, things are shifting. And I think this is, this is somewhat the new norm, you know, we're in the knowledge era and things are shifting so quickly. And so those that are going to really thrive going forward are going to be those that are able to control their emotions and able to um, work with their emotions to make better decisions and not let fear drive them and not let panic drive them, get really good at reading the environment. And that's a big part of emotional intelligence that I talk about. It's not just about me. And I think that's where we go wrong with, with emotional intelligence is we think about ourselves, just our being and self-awareness and being more empathetic. It's about, no, no, no. It's about us and our system. It's about us and our environment. It's about us with the people that we're with. And so how do I make decisions and how do I be a contributor to that so that I can make a positive impact? And that truly is emotional intelligence is when you can read the environment, see what's needed, um, look at the social situation that you're in, who are the people that I'm working with and how can I best contribute? And so right now it's a pandemic, that's our environment. Who is our team? Our team is right now virtual. We can't see them or we can't interact with them physically. And so we have to social distance. And so what does that mean? We need to be intentional about connecting with others because that's what helps um, our brains to thrive. Neuroscience has proven that our brains will thrive if we're part of a group. And so now we're going to have to be more intentional about that. We're going to have to have a little bit of leeway on, you know, to have hangouts virtually so that it's we can just chit chat. I've, I've heard a lot of employees that are like, you know, I miss just being able to pop into my coworker's office and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Or pop into my boss's office and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about saying this, what do you think? And, and they've said like, I don't want to put that in writing, like in an email, because then it's kind of a stupid question. So I notice people are hanging back a little bit and they're not asking those little chit chatty questions or they're not, you know, just kind of problem solving with others. And that's, that's really what our brain was intended to do. And that's how it thrives the most. And so we're in an environment where we can't really do that right now. And so we're going to have to replace it with something virtual. It may not be exactly the same, but it's at least the next best thing. And so that's where leaders, you have to make sure we're being transparent, we're communicating more and just getting that social boost, whether you're a leader or just an, anybody, we need that social boost to help our brain thrive. So picking up the phone or, or doing a video call with somebody will really, really help your emotional state at this point. Oh, I agree. And it's, I've instituted a couple of things with my team and also more broadly with my clients. I've got to drop in on Monday, a virtual Zoom hookup called Monday Mojo with Zozo. And it's like, unstructured. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> it's just like drop in Monday afternoon, have a cup of tea or whatever. And, um, you know, What's funny? Like I think this uh, right. this Monday we I shared a couple of things I found on the internet which were making me laugh and people were sharing different apps that they were using to play board games and and that kind of thing. And it was just an opportunity not to learn and to be progressive about anything. It which is my normal thing when I'm doing webcasts and things. It's like, how are you as a human? What's going on? And then real right. life was there, you know? Like one of the participants her her kids uh, unplugged her modem, so she she was on she was frozen on the screen for a couple of minutes till she sorted that out, and just stuff. And it just normalizes a little bit, uh, humanizes the experience that we're all going through. And there's a really important question I want to ask about um, 
self-awareness. So one of the things you mentioned around narcissists, and I don't want to keep harking on them because they are a little bit extreme. And I think this is whether you're a narcissist or not, when we're going on the leadership journey and we're discovering what it means to lead others, awareness, emotional intelligence is critical to it. And um, how do we actually develop self-awareness in in ourselves? And also, how do we help others develop self-awareness? Because I'm imagining a narcissistic type person. Basically, we want to tell them, your behavior is having an impact on others. You should be more self-aware. And then we would hope that someone give us similar feedback so that we could be less of a jerk as well. So how do you, two parts of the question, how do you develop self-awareness for yourself? And then how might you help others develop self-awareness? Yeah. Yeah. The research is pretty clear on this. Even, even for children, the best and most effective way to develop self-awareness and increase your emotional intelligence is to get feedback. And so having feedback loops, you know, in your home life, but also in your work environments is critical. And we don't do that out of fear. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, I I say this all the time, like when I speak on emotional intelligence, because people will ask that and I'll say, you know, ask for feedback around everything. We should be asking for feedback, but we don't because we're so afraid of, of what we might hear. We, we look vulnerable when we're asking for feedback but there are gold nuggets in it. It is hard and you are kind of putting yourself in a vulnerable spot, but the more you do it, the more it gets easier. And when I finally figured that out in my career, I can honestly look back at my career and I felt like that's when I really took off was number one, when I started to be like, you know what, I'm going to fail. Like I had to get over that need to be perfect and to do everything right. I just finally thought, you know what, I'm not pushing myself enough. I'm staying in the safe zone. And so I just thought I'm going to have to fail a little and that's going to be okay. And so part of that was asking for feedback. And I've, I make it a practice, like with my team members, you know, I'm like, what could I have done better on that call? What was one thing I could have said differently during that workshop or, you know, and at first they're kind of like, oh, like, oh my gosh, you like, you want me to give you feedback. And then they give me feedback. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. And then it's just been embedded in our culture. And then all of a sudden they're starting giving it to me and I don't even ask for it, which I'm like, I love that. I love that. And so we've just really built it into the culture. And now because we know it's not personal we know it's it's helpful and so you know i think narcissists are very different they're very unique but they're not going to accept the feedback most likely and then the the cycle continues because nobody wants to give them feedback and and so that's what i tell leaders you know if you don't accept feedback well nobody will ever give you feedback and that will stunt your growth as a leader and so the only response to feedback that we should get is thank you whether you agree with it or not whether you think it's helpful or not it doesn't matter The point is to say thank you and then take it back and evaluate it and see, was that good? Was it helpful? What can I do with that? Where's the gold nugget in that feedback? Because you have one perception of yourself. It's not until you bring in the perception of others that you get more of an accurate self view, because this is the cool thing. I get so excited about neuroscience, but here's the cool thing about neuroscience that a lot of people don't know. And this is embedded in social baseline theory, but Dr. James Cohn, he's a brilliant neuroscientist out of UVA. He has studied that our view of self actually includes those that are in our social network. And so the more that we understand that, don't we want, I mean, if we really truly want to know, like, and want to have that self-awareness, we need to include those around us into that feedback loop. And we need to understand what that perception is. And the more effective, the more we contribute, and the more that we have effective social relationships, the more it increases our self-awareness and the more emotionally intelligent we are. And so that's where, again, I think emotional intelligence is kind of been studied in in slightly the wrong way for many years. I mean, I think it's been a great foundation, but I think we need to broaden that to say it's much more than just about the self. 
It's about us with our social network and our system. Yeah. So I would say feedback. That's the easiest thing. It's free. You don't need a consultant or a coach to do it. Just getting additional feedback along the way. And then two, relying on mentors. For all of my CEOs that I consult with, I recommend that they get between four and, and six um, mentors in their life to provide feedback on different things. And so, you know, one may be a resource manager, somebody that knows like where everything is or who's connected to who, somebody that's just a rock star that you've admired, you know, so a different kind of broad view of mentors and they provide different feedback and give you insights um, that will help you make better decisions. And when you have people challenging you and that are willing to speak truth in your life, that really builds a lot of self-awareness as well. Okay. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Something you mentioned earlier was about the ability to control emotions is critical contributor to mental agility. How do you get people to start, like, is it controlling emotions or managing them? Is there a distinction or, and how do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. It's more about managing. I would say it's more about managing rather than controlling. I think controlling, um, I probably misspoke there, but um, I would say more about managing your emotions and knowing when you're going into an emotional state and then getting really good about being able to bring yourself out of it. And again, there's a, there's a good reason to go into an emotional state. You know that, I mean, that provides a data point. How do I feel about this? I think we've gone a little bit too far in this day and age where we think, well, that's how we feel. So it must be right. That's wrong. Emotion, emotions are wrong all the time, but it is a data point. And so I think if you view it as a data point, emotions are highly effective. But that's where we need to take it out and examine it. And so when I get into emotional state, I immediately recognize it and I label it. The brain likes labeling because then that kind of helps take us out of the emotional state. And so, you know, wow, I'm feeling really angry about that. Or wow, that person really triggered me. And so when I label it, it makes the emotion, it dissipates the emotion a little bit. And then I'm able to more effectively reflect on it. What was it about it that triggered me? See, that's kind of my trick to get myself to the thinking part of my brain. I'm trying to transition myself to say, okay, I was triggered. It took me right back to that emotional centers of the brain. And when I'm triggered and I'm, you know, if it makes me angry or I'm mad or that person set me off, I'm going to immediately go into fight or flight. And so fight will look like blame shifting. I'm mad. I may get angry. I may yell at that person and later regret it. Or flight looks like I avoided, I stick my head in the sand. And then later I'm beating myself up because now, of course, after dinner, I can think of the four things I wish I would have said in that moment. But in that moment, I couldn't come up with it. And so what we want to try to do is try to figure out, oh, interesting. Like I'm having this reaction. Okay. So what, you know, you don't have to overanalyze it, but just labeling it and saying, okay, so what's going on here? what do I need to learn? What do I need to understand? And so usually doing some perspective taking, I don't have to feel what the other person is feeling, but I do need to take some perspective and say, okay, they probably didn't show up again, unless they're a psychopath. Um, they probably didn't show up with this issue trying to make my life miserable. So let me, let me try to understand that person's perspective. And so that's how I immediately, um, I've been working on this, you know, I've worked on this my whole life, you know, again, with my mother struggling with depression, this is something I practice on a daily basis, trying to, to make sure that I'm respecting the brain and I'm working with it to try to maximize its potential. And so part of that is knowing when I'm feeling angry or frustrated, knowing that I'm going to go into fight or flight. And based on my personality, I know which one I'm probably going to do. Um, and so some of us are going to be more of a fighter and some of us are going to be more of a fleer. And so I know what my coping response is, but then I always go back to, okay, but what does this situation demand? If I get angry or if I 
um, aggressively attack this person <laughs> um, verbally, you know, is that going to solve the problem? So I always go in to seek to understand there's more to the story than I know. And so I just go into perspective taking, okay, help me understand that. And I work with CEOs that are quick to anger that they have scripts and once they get triggered, they have a script because you're not thinking at your best when you're triggered. So that's when you want to have memorized scripts that kind of slow you down. And, and so like I have one CEO where she says, okay, that's really interesting. Let me give that some thought. Um, tell me more about why, why you think that that's, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so she has a script when it triggers her and then that makes her go into listening mode. And then sure enough, that brings her down. And she's found that that's the only thing that kind of helps her in those moments where she gets triggered and she feels like, no, that person is wrong. They don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love the whole idea about perspective taking. It's one of the key concepts that's embedded in my next book also is how we, how we look at ourselves, how we see others and how we see the world is critical in terms of how we show up. And I think that's wonderful that you, you have that in, embedded in your managing emotions process. Question about psychopaths. They're different to narcissists. <laughs> what are psychopaths? How do they show up and how do we deal with them? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, so psychopaths are interesting and they really don't, you know, you don't see many that often. They're very, you know, that's a pretty rare condition. But I think looking at, you know, what really is a psychopath and a lot of people have been like, oh, no, I'm sure I've worked with a psychopath before <laughs> um, or like, oh, my cousin, Charlie. But it really is somebody with a strong mental disorder with very violent or abnormal social behavior. And so they just don't know how to effectively um, work with somebody in a social context. And again, that's very different. You know, sometimes there will be people on the spectrum with autism. That's not a psychopath. That's somebody that just has, they have other social inhibitors so that they can't always effectively read social situations. But psychopaths are really usually very violent people um, and very aggressive and they're out to get somebody. So again, they're pretty rare. But again, I think we've dealt with people that are more kind of they lack emotional intelligence or they <laughs> sometimes exhibit really like negative, um, crazy behavior. Um, but the thing about the human brain, I mean, it does nothing randomly. It's, it, it takes so much energy. It's so starved for attention that it does nothing randomly. There's a context for it. So even, you know, if there's a strong mental health disorder of violent behavior, again, um, there's something going on with that individual that's causing it. So I think that's another thing to keep in perspective is, the brain just doesn't do anything randomly. There's a story, there's a context behind it of why that's happening, whether it's biological or genetic or major trauma uh, that happened in that indiv individual's life that, you know, it can actually sever the neural pathway. And so, you know, there are certainly people with issues out there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's really good. Helping other people to get self-awareness. I just want to check something with you. So we talked about how we develop self-awareness. That's inviting feedback. If we want to teach others self-awareness, is it simply the reverse and that we gift them with the feedback or is there some other structure that we can use to help them develop self-awareness? Yeah, I would say more creating feedback loops. So working with the group to decide um, what kind of feedback loops do we want to create? I think it can feel a bit threatening if I just come in and, and be like, hey, let me give you some feedback. They may be like, whoa, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> so I think it, you know, we want to make sure that we're inviting it in. So I think if we can have a more strategic conversation around like, listen, we know that we want to be a learning organization. We want to be the best team out there, which means that we always need to be focused on continuous improvement of ourselves. Um, so we want to make sure we have really good Good feedback loops in, then it makes it less scary. And it makes it, you know, again, it's for a bigger vision. It's for the group and it's for the good of the group. 
And so I think having that discussion and then just saying to the group, okay, let's brainstorm some different ways that we can create feedback loops. In. And I did this with an organization, a healthcare organization. You know, we think about people that are driven towards healthcare. They're very, they have a helping nature. Um, they love people. They want to feel like what they're doing is making an impact. And those people, that's their strength. Sometimes the downside is they tend to be very conflict avoidant. And so I worked with this one particular healthcare organization and they really struggled addressing conflict because they really did, they cared so much that they didn't want to, they didn't want to have any conflict. And so I worked with creating feedback loops so that we could address things that were brewing because what happens is it comes out very passive aggressively. Even, even with the most caring individuals, it, it will leak out and it becomes very passive aggressive. And so they started to see that, oh yeah, it is leaking out and it is uh, becoming passive aggressive. And so we built in feedback loops and I just facilitated a session and said, okay, let's build this in. Let's make sure we're the best team ever and that we build the kind of team where we all feel safe, um, that we can voice our own opinions. And so they actually helped create the feedback loop. And the CEO was shocked. Like afterwards, she was like, oh my gosh, like they're not like scared of it. They're now like volunteering it and they're they're really you know it took a while it took a process to do it but the more we create a process and we make it a safe space for people to do that the more they really leaned into it and after a while didn't feel like conflict i mean conflict is really just people problem solving and it's one of the things that trips us up the most but it we have to get good at people problem solving otherwise the very thing that makes us good and brings out the best in our brain is having these good deep relationships and if we can't resolve conflict we'll never get there we'll keep it at the superficial level Indeed. I completely agree with that. It's a perennial skill that no matter how experienced a leader or a group of leaders is, learning how to resolve that conflict is, is essential. Can you just clarify what a feedback loop is? Uh, so I understand giving feedback, but what's the feedback loop piece? Yeah. So feedback loops are just kind of a process where we embed feedback into our like daily work processes. For instance, um, for the healthcare group, um, they were working on different projects. So they, they created like stops along the way, not every day, but like different points along the project where they would stop and everybody individually would write down feedback and then they would discuss it as a group. Okay, what's the most important feedback that we need to address? What is working really well? Um, so both positive feedback doesn't have to be negative. It would say what's working really well, but it's a chance to step back and evaluating how are we working well together and where could we be working better? And I think when you improve it as what could we improve on going forward, that also makes it feel less threatening. So it's really, you can just put like evaluation you can call it feedback loop, you can call it evaluation, but little stops along the way to where we can step back and say, huh, how are we doing? How are we doing as a group? And when you do that, research shows that not only does it help with mitigating conflict or addressing conflict that is there, but it actually makes the end product, what you're trying to accomplish much more effective. Because when you take a minute to step back and think and evaluate, of course, you're going to see like areas where we can improve. And again, we're, we're in such a culture where we're so you know, strapped for time and attention that we just barrel through and we're such doers that we're really not thinking at all. And so this just builds in a little bit of thinking. It builds in a little bit of reflection. How are we doing and what do we want to focus on to improve? Fantastic. Carrie, this has been such a rich interview. We've gone way over time. <laughs> 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 and I've just loved, loved mining your experience and your insight uh, around the people stuff. Like this is what gets me out of bed in the morning is just trying to understand how we can get along better together. And thank you so much for all of your critical insights. How can people find out more about you and your work? 
Yeah, probably the easiest way is just to visit us on our website at thinkaperio.com. And you can find articles that we've written. You can find a link to the book. Um, we've added resources to the book. We've tried to make it, the one thing that I've always heard about emotional intelligence is it's so conceptual, like what do I do with it? And that's one thing that me and my team have really worked on is let me give you some practical applications on this. So I would say definitely visit our website and, um, and utilize some of our resources that we have there. And we will definitely put links to that in the show notes. And those will be at zoeyrouth.com slash podcast slash Carrie Guayet. Or if you're listening to this on your device of some sort, the links will be right there in the show description. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much. That was just amazing. So we thank you so much for having me on your show. And gosh, I appreciate so much. I love finding like-minded people that are really kind of promoting, how, like, how do we bring out the best in us? So just really appreciate the work that you've done in this space as well. You're welcome. Oh my goodness, I took so many notes in that interview. I could have kept talking to her all day. Of course, we're both riffing on the stuff we love most, the people stuff. Uh, for me, some of the key takeaways that I can action right away, uh, and I'm sure you've got lots of similar ones. One is when you're dealing with crisis and how to be part of the 20% of teams that are high performing is to inspire hope. And I think that's a really useful, practical things that every leader can do is to how can we inspire hope in our teams and what can we take action next? That's really useful. And then the whole idea of feedback loops and how to embed feedback processes into our systems. I can apply that right away in my teams and the work that I do with CEOs. And to give it a name and then to embed it in your processes is really useful. And then, of course, knowing and learning a little bit more about narcissists and psychopaths. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I certainly did. And if you want to talk about your people stuff, the good, the bad, the ugly, I would love to talk with you. So just reach out and we can book an appointment and see what's happening in your world as a CEO and what's happening with your teams and how we can make it even better. All right. Have a good one. Lead well, live well.